Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 13. For me, one of the more difficult passages of Scripture to understand. There are different interpretations to it. With that said, um, study it for yourself. Study it for yourself. Go and, and read the passages in the parallel passages in Mark, I'm sorry, in Luke and in Matthew. Go check out Daniel, read Revelation. This is very difficult passages of Scripture. I think for many people, there's obviously different opinions, but uh, we pray that the bottom line is, is what the Lord's saying here is, hey, be ready, I'm coming. And so, this is the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. He has cleansed the temple He's cursed the fig tree. He's had some run-ins with some of the uh, Pharisees and whatnot. They've challenged him over and over. He gave a, a, a parable saying, uh, you know, when they asked what authority, he said, I'm not going to give you what the answer is. And he gave him a, a parable. And he talks about a man who had, uh, I mean, a, a person who had a vineyard. He took very good care of it. And then he went off to a distant land and he gave it to some people. And then he sent prophets or people, actually servants, to go collect the fruit. And as time went on, they, they, they killed those servants every time they came. And finally, he sent his own son to go collect upon the fruit, and surely they'll respect him. No, they killed him as well. And so Jesus was obviously speaking this parable against the religious leaders of the day. And sadly, the nation of Israel was destroyed. They did not listen. They didn't bear the fruit, as we talked about last week, that God was looking for, love, loving their neighbor instead. God looked for justice. Instead, he found you know, bloodshed and murder and all these difficult things that we read about in Isaiah, the horrible things. They sent their own Messiah, the one they'd been talking about. Everything was centered upon him, and they would crucify him. They were hard-hearted. They had the appearance of godliness. They went to church. They did the sacrifices. They gave their offerings. They did all these things. But when it came down to loving God, the leaders on down, the people were hard-hearted. When he came into the city, Jesus, they said, what did they say to him? Hosanna on the highest. What did they say a week later? Crucify him. So, as we get to Mark chapter 13 here, it says, as they were leaving the temple... One of, his one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Jesus had been teaching in the temple. He had been going there daily in this last week, really laying into them. Hoping that hearts would turn, knowing that they wouldn't. And these guys, as they were walking out of this temple, it was an amazing temple, uh, they were looking at these stones and going, What, what an amazing structure. Now, if you remember Israel's history, they had the Solomon Temple. When Dave, David, not Dave, when Dave was king, <clears throat> yeah, it's like Rackshack and Benny, you know. Um, sorry, guys. When, when David was king, the Lord wouldn't let him build the temple because he had blood on his hands. He was a man of war. So he let Solomon build the temple. Solomon built an amazing temple. But what happened is the hearts of Israel, the hearts of the people, turned against God. They started worshiping idols. And so God sent the prophets and said, Hey, listen, destruction's going to come unless you turn back to me with all of your heart. Did they do that? No. The nation was divided. 
into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came in, they wiped out the northern kingdom. Then in 586 87 BC, the southern kingdom was taken by Babylon. The southern kingdom is where Jerusalem was. They came in and they absolutely leveled the city. Totally destroyed it. Well, Zerubbabel, as we read in Ezra, had this burden in his heart. He was weeping before the king. And the king said, hey, what's up? A different king, by the way. And he said, listen, I, I got to go rebuild this temple. He says, all right, go ahead and do it. And God gave him favor. And he went and he rebuilt the temple. It was a meager rebuilding. But nevertheless, he rebuilt the temple. And then there became an intertestamental period where there was nothing going on that we read about, but it's in the Apocrypha and other things. Um, there's the Maccabean Revolt. And when we get to the time of Christ, we find that a few years before that, 19 years before Christ was born, a guy named King Herod came on the scene. Herod the Great. He was a little man, so of course he was Herod the Great. And he built these enormous structures, amazing structures, so much so that this temple... Herod's temple that he built upon, he expanded Zerubbabel's rebuilding, so they call it the second temple or, or, uh, or uh, Herod's temple. It was an amazing structure. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The stones were massive, as I had talked to you about. When you go down in the rabbi's tunnel, which is on the western wall uh, of 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 Jerusalem today. Uh, the western wall is the wall portion that holds up the temple mount which the temple was built upon. That part was left. And as you go underneath, way down where they've excavated down to the time of Christ, you can see these huge stones that are as big as these sta- the stages. 50 feet long. You know, 50 feet long, 15 feet, feet thick, and I think it's like 8 feet high. Amazing stones. They still are just wondering how in the world, the modern crane couldn't lift it. How in the world did they do this? And so this amazing architecture, as they're looking at this temple that was decked out with gold sheets all over it, as uh, one of the early historians talked about, Josephus. It would shimmer in the light, he said, and if, it, if you looked at it wrong, it would blind you. Just, you know, you get one of those perma burns, you know? You're walking around. It was just an amazing sight. And these disciples, they were walking out of it. And it still wasn't totally completed yet because he started 20 years before Christ, Herod did. It wasn't finished until 60 AD. It took 80 years for this thing to be built. So Herod had died. And it was about 18 years left of this building by the time we're reading this right now. And so there might have been some construction going on. That they're just going, man, look at this thing. What magnificent buildings. And Jesus said to them, verse 2, Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone here will be left on another. Everything will be thrown down. You know, obviously, knowing the dimensions of the things I was just talking about, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, history records that 40 years after Jesus' death, I mean, yeah, about 40 years after Jesus' death, in 70 A.D., there was a rebellion that had been going on for a little bit between the Jews and the occupying Romans. Well, the Romans got sick of it, and they came in, and they destroyed the Jews. They had laid siege to Jerusalem several different times, but they finally they broke down the walls. And in 70, uh, 70 AD, on the 9th of Av, they came in, 
and they killed everybody. There was like one million people, that, one million, one hundred thousand people that died during the siege in the city. They were eating their children. They were, they were starved so bad. It was just a horrible situation. I don't want to go into any more uh, situations, but Josephus records this for us, this extra-biblical source of what was going on. It was horrible. And so the remaining of the guys, what happened as the story goes, they ran into the temple to seek refuge, locked the door. Well, Titus, he, he wanted to keep that temple as a prize. But anyways, and there's different stories, conflicting stories, but this is the most popular. Uh, a, Roman, uh, a Roman soldier who was drunk, they shot a flaming arrow through there and it lit the whole thing on fire. And people were incinerated inside and everything that burned could burn and was burning in the city. And it melted that gold and it melted down into the cracks of the temple. And so in order to loot it, they had to pull those stones apart one at a time to pull the gold in between it. And they would pull it off and they'd throw it over the side into the valley. And not one stone of that temple was left upon another. They've excavated down to that tropaz or whatever it's called, the tropaz valley that's just off the side there where they pulled those stones off. And they excavated down to the Roman road and you can see these massive stones just lying there, some of them broken from the fall. Just as Jesus said. Quite literal. It was just an amazing, an amazing prophecy that Jesus given that it was fulfilled a short time later. Notice it was literally fulfilled. The how is obviously impossible to us. How is this going to happen? That's quite a feat. It took 80 years to put this thing together. But nevertheless, it happened just as Jesus has said it would. And so as we're reading here, they're looking at this, they're looking at this amazing building. They're saying, wow, look at it. And Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone of it will be left upon another. And that's exactly what happened. And as Jesus was sitting on the mount of olives opposite the temple. So they walked across the Kidron Valley and, and up the Mount of Olives, which faces, you know, to the east there. You could oversee the city just a short distance away. You could oversee this beautiful, shining, glimmering place with all the hustle and bustle going about during this time when all the people were pouring into the city as the festival was beginning, the Passover. As they said on the Mount of Olives, opposite of the temple, Peter, James, and John, Ans- and, and Andrew asked them privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when they're about to be fulfilled? When, when's this going to be fulfilled? And Matthew's account gives us a little bit more of what they asked. It says, uh, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they're asking a couple different questions here that deal with, okay, when's this going to happen? What's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When's this all going to wrap up? You're talking these apocalyptic language. We want to know some timing. And Jesus begins to answer them starting in verse, in verse 5. And this is known as the Olivet Discourse for any of those uh, who are caring. Um, because he's on the Mount of Olives and he's talking. The verse, and he goes... Jesus said in verse 5, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. The very first thing he says, Watch out that no one deceives you. The very thing, the very first thing out of Jesus' mouth was, Watch out. Deception is on the horizon. 
It's lurking. It's going to be there. And this is a common theme throughout the New Testament. We see that John taught on it. Peter warned of it. When he was talking to Timothy, you know, John in, in his letters, he, he, he poured out his heart. He was, you know, be, beware of false teachers. Beware of people who come in and deceive you. And Jesus gives examples of these, these deception in verse 6. He says, many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. He will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There are just going to be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains and sorrows. I think what Jesus is saying here is that these things that I'm just talking about right now are not the specific signs of my imminent return. They are not the signs of my imminent return. In of, of themselves. He says, listen, they're kind of like, you know, birth pains. They're, they're, well, they're, they're kind of Brax, Braxton Hicks types things, false, false going on. Man, there's going to be false messiahs that are going to be coming over the next, when, until I come again. There will be these guys. You know, don't bite. Be aware. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. This is going to be happening until my return. All this type of stuff must happen. There will be world wars. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Don't bite. I haven't come yet. There will be earthquakes in various places. Don't bite. I'm not there yet. And there will be famines. We are the world. These are the beginnings of of the birth pains or sorrows as it's translated. You know, it's really interesting about that word that's translated sorrows or birth pains. You know, it can be translated either way. And the idea of birth pains is what happens to them. They start out kind of not so intense. Not, now, please forgive me, all right? I have no, I know not what I speak of, okay? All I know is that I better get her to the hospital. That's all I know, okay? <laughs> I'm such a bad husband. You can walk. Don't, I'm glad Christine's with her mom right now in Spokane because I'm not going to put this on the website. Anyways, <laughs> what happens at church stays in church. Anyway. I better stop, yeah. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, birth pains, they intensify. They intensify with pain and the time in between them increases. And I think anybody looking at our world history has seen that things have greatly increased and the intensity between things has come closer and closer. Two world wars in the past hundred years, great earthquakes all over the world, and also our ability to hear on the other side of the world is a factor we have to have in there. But I think intensity is happening, the weather patterns and all these types of interesting things that we're looking at. And, and the tendency for us is to go, ah, the end is near, we're gone, you know. Let's go build a camp on top of a hill. And Not yet. These things will happen. They're like birth pains. They're going to increase. But I'm not there yet. And he's going to tell us when the actual sign of his coming is in here in just a second. But there's going to be these things. None of these events in and of themselves trigger my coming. They're just the beginning of sorrows. It's just the beginning. 
You must be on your guard, Jesus repeats in verse 9. Between then, between now and his coming, he says you've got to be on your guard. For his disciples, he was talking to them. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings and witness to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. When you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you're going to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you who is speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And he talks about brother will be betrayed, brother to death, and a father his children. Children will rebel against their parents and have to put them to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. These types of things will increase and will be going on. And he talks about this, and we see this in Acts. These things happen to Stephen, to Paul, and to Peter, and the rest of the New Testament. They spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were rejected and killed. And it's happening to our brothers and sisters today. On the other side of the world, they're speaking in the name of Jesus. They're preaching his gospel and they are rejected and they are killed. They are brought before kings and they are speaking their, they're brought before councils, both religious and, and governmental. They're being persecuted. They're being killed. Something in the year 2000, I forgot, it was 150,000 people gave, you know, were martyred. For Jesus, that's a lot of people. You know, and that number might be low. I can't really pull it off the top of my head right now. But he says, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. That's a little tricky there. Some of our theology says, okay, the gospel's got to be preached to all nations before, you know, these things happen. That could be so, but I look at it and I say, when Paul was talking back, I think it was to, I can't remember, I think it was the Corinthians. But he said something about, hey, the gospel has already been preached to all the world, something to that effect. So, therefore, in that known era, in that time, the gospel had been spread to all the known people without airplanes, without cell phones, and all these things. Boy, what about today, huh? <laughs> but this idea, you're going to be handed over to the local councils and flogged. We see this is happening today. They have been beaten. They have been brought before governments. They have been persecuted. And this happened to the disciples, and it's happening to our brothers and sisters right now. You know, we're very fortunate that this is not happening to us here in the U.S. You know, that we're free to speak of Jesus for a time. But in my heart, I often wonder, the reason why we're not being persecuted like Jesus and these other people, like Jesus promised is because we've not stood like these other people are standing. That we haven't boldly proclaimed Jesus Christ. Because that's a promise Jesus gives. And the Beatitudes, blessed are you when you are persecuted, you know, for my righteousness sake. Hey, by the way, you will be persecuted. One of these promises, these promises we kind of brush under the rug. You will be persecuted. When you live a life that abides in me, when you are bringing forth fruit of righteousness, when you are letting my Holy Spirit flow through the life, because guess what? The world hates it. The world doesn't want to be told that they've sinned against God. Sin. Can't we just change our terminology? Okay. 
You've really blown it. You're not good enough. You're not going to make it. Anything, you know, I, mean, I don't know how to water it down any better. Here's a Grand Canyon, and you're cruising on a, on a moped, and it's not going to happen. Your efforts aren't going to make it. You're, you've fallen short of the glory of God. Repent. Another word that they love to hear. They hate that. And even Christians, they don't want to talk about it. Why not? That's the gospel. Repent and turn from your sin. Be saved from the Savior. Saved from what? Saved from hell. Another thing we don't want to talk about. Oh, don't talk, preach about hell, fire, and brimstone. Jesus talked about hell. And the reason why I talked about it is because he doesn't want people to go there. It's a reality. Oh, how he loves you. Yes, God is a God of love, but he's also just. And those who do not call upon the name of Jesus are not going to make it. Ouch. These situations are happening. The persecution. And I wonder in my own heart, am I, am I, I don't want to go get myself into trouble. But am I living boldly for Jesus in every circumstance? But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. What does this mean to stand firm till the end? I personally think you just better read it. And, you know, if you're standing firm, you don't need to worry about it. But I think it means we have been, what we've been talking about, abiding in Christ. You're in the vine. These things are happening. Yeah, it bugs you, but your faith isn't shaken. You know your king. You've been with him. You're firmly rooted in him. You are one with Christ. You are your, you know, you are your beloved and he is mine. You know, you're, you're just connected with him. You're his. You know, to stand. He who stands firm. Read Ephesians for homework for extra credit. Don't just go to chapter 6 where it talks about standing, putting on the full armor. Go and read from the beginning of who you are in Christ all the way till the end. And you see, ah, oh, now stand. You're standing in him. You're rooted in him. And now Jesus gives the sign of his coming, his soon coming in verse 14. And when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. This is the sign. You'd better understand, in other words. And he's referring to the abomination that causes desolation, which is in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, which says, His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice, then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now, if Jesus had not said that this event was yet future, we would look back in history before that time, in between the end of the Old Testament and New Testament, there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, I think his name was. Well, he came in, and there was a, War with the Jews, yes, you know, there's always a war with the Jews. He came in, and he just absolutely smashed them. And then in the Holy of Holies, he went in, and, well, actually, he, where the altar was, he sacrificed a pig, which is what you don't do. And then to make that worse, he set up brothels all in the, on the courts there, you know. And then he went into the Holies of Holies, and sprinkled pig's blood everywhere. 
So that's quite a desecration. But Jesus is saying, no, that's not it. Hasn't happened yet. And so he's looking towards a future event. Jesus was saying that there will be an abomination that causes desolation, a totally unclean thing, an image set up in the temple that causes destruction in its wake. And Matthew's gospel says, standing in the holy place, that this thing is going to be set up in the holy of holies of the temple. You walk in the temple. Well, first of all, I'm a priest, okay? Let's pretend we're priests because I can't go in in the temple unless I'm a priest. You walk, there's the temple courts where people are allowed. But I walk in the temple, and there's the showbread off to the left, and you've got the, um, there's the shofar off to the right. You're walking in, then that's the holy place. But then there's this room called the Holy of Holies where there's this veil, and a priest could only go in that room once, once a year and not without blood. And there was the sacrifice, the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, there was the Ark of the Covenant in there that, hold, that held Aaron's rod and the commandments of the Lord that was in there. And they would always, remember I told you about that? They tied like a, a rope to the priest's waist in case he hadn't gone through the correct ceremonial type things because when he's walking in there and they put little bells on him and he wasn't clean and all that stuff, <laughs> the holiness, the presence of God, he dropped dead. They had to pull him out. They're not going in there after him. So in this holy of holies, there will be set up this image, this abomination that causes desolation. When you see this happen in the temple of Jerusalem, look out. Devastation will come, and that's when God's wrath is going to be poured out. The situation uh, Jesus was speaking about here, that is to precede his second coming, is spoken about in several passages of Scripture, not just in Daniel, Daniel, Daniel here. They help give some insight, these other scriptures, as to what exactly this abomination looks like or is. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, yeah, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching, uh, by the teaching allegedly from us. False teaching, right? whereby a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter asserting that the day of the Lord has already come, that it's already happened. Preterists, read this. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs or the falling away occurs, however you want to interpret that. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. So what do we learn about this abomination that causes desolation? It's a person. It's a man. This image that is set up in the temple is actually the image of a man, the man of sin, who is popularly called the Antichrist. I am God. He stands in the Holy of Holies. So we learn that this abomination is the Antichrist or the man of sin. So the abomination that causes desolation, being set up in the temple in the Holy of Holies, is a sign that Christ's second coming is imminent. How imminent? How soon when that happens? Check out Daniel chapter uh, 12, 11 later. I'm going to read it for you. It says this. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there's going to be 1,290 days until the end, basically three and a half years. 
Three and a half years from the time that guy sets himself up until Jesus comes back. Three and a half years. That's what the Bible teaches. The last three and a half years is what we recall to, we refer to as the great tribulation. That's when God pours out his wrath upon sinful man. When that guy sets it up, look out. Start reading, you know, you look and read Revelation. That's what's going to happen at that time. Christians have been teaching about this for centuries. If you read back in, you know, just for example, the reading of, uh, I think his name, um, sorry, name Arrhenius. Remember him? He wrote in the late second century. But when the Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for righteousness the times of the kingdom. This is Arrhenius reading in the second century. One of the early church fathers. This is Christian doctrine. This is not fringe stuff. This is central. But we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Where is this abomination going to take place, real quickly? In the... Oh. And the Holy of Holies. Wait, wait a second. What are we missing in Jerusalem? Oh. <laughs> What's on the Temple Mount right now? There's a big old mosque. In the Dome of the Rock. Not just any mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Imagine that a little bit of a political problem. So there's some issues. But like we said before, how in the world is the temple going to be torn down, not one stone left on another? And because of the impossibilities, people start to go, oh, well, let's spiritualize it out. Listen, I don't know how it's going to happen. All I know is it's going to happen the way he said it's going to happen. Amen? Don't know. Sorry, not enough information here. But what I know, that temple will be rebuilt. And that guy will set himself up. And when that happens, all hell is going to break loose. And it's not going to be good for those who are here. Even today, it's kind of interesting, there's a group called the Temple Mount Faithful who are totally considered radical zealots in Jerusalem. They have all the temple garbs. They have all the priestly stuff. They have all the, you know, like the Ark of the Covenant. They have, they have it all rebuilt, the scale and everything. Ready to put it in there. They've got the priests all trained and everything. They're waiting. Of course, most Jews, they don't want it rebuilt. We'll get into this some other time, but it's very interesting. I think this man of sin, the Bible alludes to it, is going to set up a treaty. He's going to be very powerful and very influential, and he'll set up a treaty to where, okay, you guys can live side by side here. They'll build the temple. And uh, for three and a half years, that's going to be great, but the last three and a half years, it's not. And... So anyways, this, this, uh, this problem we have will be taken care of someday. Now, obviously, these guys are, are working on it today, uh, but we'll see what happens. Then, um, it says in, in verse uh, 14, the end of 14, 14b, Then let those, when this happens, that abomination that causes desolation, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let no one on the housetop go down or into the house to take anything out. That's interesting to talk about the housetops to this day. That's a very part of, of Middle Eastern culture. You build your house upon the other. You go to your top of your house. Your relatives, 
they, they, you, you build upon their house when you get married. So you're living upstairs, and then they build upon theirs. So it's kind of interesting. Let no one go back in their field for their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Jesus is thinking about this. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those days of distress unequal from uh, those days, for those will be days of distress unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now. More distress than the flood. From when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Bad news. If the Lord had not cut short these days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Now the elect, we can talk about that later. I believe it's 144,000 Jews, but we can get into that another time. The book of Revelation, you know. uh, Read it and have fun with it. It's going to be, we'll see there, a serious time of suffering. It talks talks about labor pans. The contractions will be actually in full throttle. And at that time, verse 21, if anyone says, look, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, even if possible, the elect. Even at that time, when all that crazy stuff's going, the end of the world, I'm the Messiah. Surely they're going to be looking for a way out. Don't believe it, he said to them. And then, so even signs and wonders, what he talked about will be increasing and evil, evil powers will be happening. There'll be signs and wonders, deceiving signs of wonders. <clears throat> and verse 24 says, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. <clears throat> we are going to see Jesus' return. Everybody's going to see it. That's going to be the focal point of humanity. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Sun and the moon, they aren't going to work. Stars are going to be falling from the sky. The universe is going to shake. And at that time, people will see Jesus coming in clouds with great power and glory. Great power and glory. It's going to be awesome. Jesus is coming back. Amen? All blessing and power and honor to him. It's just going to be exciting and amazing to be with him, I believe. Coming back down when he comes to clean house. It's just going to be wonderful. And Jesus ends up here. It says now in verse 28. <clears throat> now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. It's springtime right now. We're starting to see things. Right? Right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. The generation that sees the tree, the, the, this tree bud. Heaven and earth will, not pa- will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Saying, you know the seasons and the generation that sees this begin to happen. These things, these birth things that are happening will not pass away until all these things have happened. You could also look at this as the nation of Israel coming back. Uh, There's a couple different ways that people have interpreted that. But let's just kind of keep it right here for right now. Um, When you see these birth pains, when you see these things happen, look at it. It's like a fig. It's about to happen. But, 
verse 32. About that day and hour, no one knows. Anybody saying, oh, he's going to come back on the end of the world will be? Nope. That movie a little while back about the year, the Incan thing, whatever it was. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. But about the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. That's cool. The Father only knows. Top secret. Be on guard. Be alert. Jesus warns again. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks. Wake up, church. Listen. It's like a man going away, and he leaves his servants in charge with an assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at the midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. You just don't know. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping, church. Do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Don't let Jesus find you sleeping. Wake up, church, and shine. He's coming back. Live the life that brings him honor. Cast away those weights that so easily ensnare us. Amen? What are those weights in your life that are are stopping you from living the life, are hindering you from being filled with the Holy Spirit and living the way? Get them out. Gone. Cut them off, Jesus said. Live. Live. For him, don't be asleep. You think God's going to care who's on American Idol? <clears throat> Not to say we can't watch these things. You know, I'm just saying that don't wrap your life up in things that don't matter as much. Wrap your life up in people and relationships. Eternal things. Yeah, hang out with my wife and watch a show. That's cool. My life isn't evolved around it, doesn't revolve around it. Let the Holy Spirit direct your life. Abide in Christ today. This is the warning to the church. This is the exhortation this morning. Jesus is saying, watch out. Abide in Him today. Love one another. Anyone you have a problem with in this room, love them, one another. Work it out. Time is short. Stop it. Knock it off. Let's get it done. You've been given a task. Don't, let's not be like these Pharisees, right? Lord, please, that's in my heart. That's a potential. It's there. Let me be a good and faithful servant. Love one another. Pray and watch. He's coming like a thief in the night at an hour you do not know. Be ready. Let's pray.